Welcome to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. I'm Gail Stewart, along with my co-host, Raul Sandalin, Dr. Stacy Hankinson. I am so excited. I have been working to get our little podcast on the people's radar nationally, okay? I got to tell you, it's working. It's working. We're on the cusp right now, people, okay? Raul, what's up for you on your segment today? Going to be talking about motifs. Ooh, we're going to go deep, right? Oh, we always do. Okay, all right. And Dr. Hankinson, tell us. The Netflix 2021 made blockbuster hit. But this is the one that was discussed at the Great Writers Guild Foundation and Netflix event that I went up to Los Angeles to see, where we met the showrunner of Made. That's awesome. Yeah, which was very, very cool. And Stephanie Lynn came in via Zoom. That's great. And she talked about adapting that to a tele, you know, to, to script. Right. Incredible story. That story is really, really good. It really is. It touches on a lot of nerves, right? It's kind of heavy. It's It was a surprise that it was so popular because a lot of it's hard to swallow. Single mom. Domestic abuse. Mother-daughter. Home, homelessness. Right? Mother-daughter relationship. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot to that one. Now, I am still ruminating, if you can believe it, over the motif of characters and their food. Okay, I got, oh, yeah, I yeah. am, I really got tripped up by that at that one Studio Binder YouTube video. I am less like, I couldn't get over it because I didn't understand at the time when I was watching that movie, Pulp Fiction, why I liked it so much, why it was so, it stuck with me all these years and why it actually became a thing, right? It became a thing. The food, the mayonnaise, you know, they smother that blank with it, you know, meaning it was funny. There's some funny stuff. But we're going to talk about that and the strudel scene in Inglorious Bastards. I'm going to mention that, but I have more example for us coming up. So stay tuned. You are listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio on 89.1 FM, San Diego's only social justice network. Stay with us. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. I'm Gail Stewart. Now, Raul, last week you discussed character traits, which was very interesting. But this week you're taking on motifs. And there are similarities. There's overlaps. In fact, I got a couple of, of examples how we can confuse the two. But they're actually a little bit different. I think if we start at the beginning, kind of thread through a different few different ways of looking at motifs yes. will we'll end up with an understanding, knowing that there's even some confusion and disagreements, especially online at the different sites. But first of all, uh, the word motif is French for motive. A motif is a motivating force, something right. that helps push the plot along. Mm -hmm. One way to look at it is this. If a location is a backdrop, a motif is a foredrop. Oh, it's that's something you put in the foreground. Right, right. So I think uh, the best way to look at a motif is a physical thing or something that you can see or hear. It could be a song. 
maybe smell a certain mm-hmm. food, and I'm hint, hinting. I think you're the gonna, perfume. Remember you know, what was that? Perfume. Yeah, what was that movie where the guy smelled the perfume of women? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was really. It was good. Yeah. And there's been that's been used where the smell of yeah, the, the killer, scent, the ling- scent of a woman, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, scent is. of a woman, yeah, and then yeah. there's also been lingering scents where a cologne will stay in the room after the killer's left. I think it also speaks to a recurrence, right? It's something that sort of holds the plot together because it's always there. So we can use motifs to highlight, accentuate themes also. But as Stacy said, it's a repeating thing that seems to just always pull us back to the center of a film. So for example... Um, well, there's lots of examples, and there's also even sort of cult following of motifs. Uh, some of the famous ones are oranges and Godfather, and I know you're going to be talking about mm-hmm. food here in a minute. Um, right before this, when I was doing a little quick research, I saw that a lot of people are fascinated by the use of food in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So certainly food has been used in different places. Uh, there's also sort of a fan site devoted to nothing but the Coen Brothers' use of desks. So you'll never watch a Coen Brothers film again because now you'll be spotting all the people who are sitting at desks. Hmm. And I wonder what why that he has means. them sitting at a desk. It's so boring, right? Sitting at a desk? Yeah. Well, I think what it is is sort of a receptive thing. It's come oh. to me. Oh, you know, right. You right. Know, oh, is it a power thing? Someone could, sitting behind a desk, you know, authoritative, maybe? The, the desk is like the modern throne. Instead oh. of walking up to the king and kissing it, his ring, right. now you walk in and stand or sit in front of the boss's desk. Right. So, so sure, it's a symbol of power. And at the desk, you know, if your chair is lower, usually the chair on the opposite side of, like, the authoritative figure is lower so that they can look down on you, right? They right. sit on a platform <laughs> and you de- and you sit in a pit kind of thing, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been to offices where that's, yeah. I'm like, okay, this is strange, but yeah. Okay, so the Godfather's uh, one, the Coen Brothers. Yeah, brothers. Coen Brothers use desks. I would say the cornfield and field of dreams. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, even though we could debate, is that a location or is that a motif? Right, yeah. But I would say the Iowa, uh, state of Iowa, would be more lo- the location. And then the cornfield and the baseball field they build in the cornfield would be more on the foreground. Mm-hmm. Cheers always going back. Yeah. You know, it's a location, but it's also a motif. Well, the you drinking know. definitely at Cheers, right? And yeah. then the name, the fact that it's a bar. You're not just going there. You're going into a certain... It was a neighborhood know, bar where people could go and hang out. Uh, I'm also thinking of smoking and Smokey and the Bandit, the Trans Am, the car that's Christine, always jumping over Christine stuff. Christine the car, right? The yeah. car, Christine the crazy car. That was a, like a murderous car. And uh, going back to the character traits, is Christine a motif or is she a character? You can use a motif, but you don't necessarily have to split the hairs on what's a motif, what's a theme, what's a metaphor, what's an allegory. But I did want to say one other thing, how motifs can sort of combine into a subgenre. For instance, let's take the motif of the piano. 
All right. Yeah. On an object to Amadeus mm-hmm. to Great Balls of Fire, mm-hmm. the Jerry Lee Lewis story. I'm sure there was a piano in the Freddie Mercury movie. Those are all very different films. The yeah. person who might love the piano may not love Great Balls of Fire. However, piano buffs or piano aficionados might want to see them all because they love pianos. The piano, a motif, sort of creates a subgenre of films for anybody who just really loves the piano and has to see every movie related to the piano. So I think what's important is that when, as screenwriters, when we sit down to think about our script, we have an idea, right? We've got an idea that kind of comes out of, you know, maybe you've, we've thought about it for many years. But like, say, the horseshoe, unbeknownst to myself at the time, I didn't realize that the horseshoe was going to be a motif in, 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 the, in, this, in, my, in my script, right? The, the physical object. The, yeah, well, yeah, the, yeah. well, the physical object, but mainly the governor's office is called the horseshoe right Mm -hmm. and the horseshoe is you can have luck up in sacramento or Mm -hmm. you can have bad luck in sacramento right yeah (laughs) it gives you luck or it hits you upside the head right right so i literally put a picture of a horseshoe on my on Mm -hmm. my pitch deck right and talked about it yeah well film is a visual medium and I've said this probably every single episode. Yeah. So everything do. Do. we do, good, good. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure I do in every future episode because it's not a thinking medium. It's not a spiritual medium. It's not a mental, psychological medium. It's a visual medium. You have to find visual things that represent stuff. So that's what the motif is, a visual object that represents something deeper. Nice. Thank you, Raul Sandlin. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. And why don't you tell us one more time, Stacey, what we're going to be up to in a little bit you're going to talk about? The, the Netflix blockbuster made. That's right. The blockbuster. Okay, stay tuned. We are going to talk more about food and characters, okay? And what that food represents in some scenes. It's very, very interesting. It's my latest phase, you know, I don't know. Anyhow, you're listening to 89.1 FM, San Diego's only social justice network, KNSJ. The San Diego Screenwriter Studio is in session, people. We are here. Yeah. We got a big crowd today. I got to tell you, my two chihuahuas are sleeping in the background. Yeah. <laughs> I was going through YouTube watching some videos for my class uh, at Roadmap Writers. I was doing this uh, pitch class. I'm doing the pitch class anyhow. And I saw this video by Studio Binders on YouTube, and it was it's fast. It was fascinating to me. They just did a whole segment on Quentin Tarantino's fascination with characters and food, and how he presents it, and how he drives the story, and how it works as a like a jarring shift of tonality in his in his movies, which it, it does. It's just incredible. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper with that. And so I was looking around the the internet, and of course, I you know some of the most fantastic movie scenes, characters with movies that really kind of tell a little bit about them, is the opening scene in Breakfast at Tiffany's, 1961. And the reason I bring up this old movie is because they say it's it's one of the best scenes in cinema history. It's dawn on Fifth Avenue in New York City. The music score 
you know, you talked about, Stacey, how important the music score is. This one is Moon River is playing in the background, which, you know, already kind of tugs at your heartstrings. And a taxi comes into view. It's an empty street. It pulls up outside Tiffany's and company, and a magnificent Audrey Hepburn steps out. Her back is to the camera, so you can't see her face at this point, and she's in a black evening gown. She has big, long gloves on that go up over her elbow, and the back of the dress has a cut-out, pearl-encrusted design. I mean, it's gorgeous. And her hair is styled up in the 1960s fashion, and she has on these big black sunglasses, and she walks up to this Tiffany's front window. And she opens up a small bakery bag and she takes out a freshly baked croissant. She has a little cup of coffee to go in her hand and she bites down on the croissant and we can almost taste the butter and smell the coffee. She's actually having breakfast in front of Tiffany's. And she walks to the next camera and for the first time the camera view shifts and we actually see the front shot of this incredibly heartbreakingly beautiful woman wearing a jewel tiara, in fact, and she's window shopping. And she's just kind of casually eating this beautiful croissant with her black gloves, uh, her evening gloves, but it's dawn in the morning. And she is so elegant, and she's dreaming. She's window shopping. She's a woman who looks like she has the world by the string, but she's actually having one of the cheapest New York breakfasts there is, and it's the one that she can afford. If you haven't seen it, pull it up on YouTube. It's great. But it's about the food, and the food tells the story about her right off the bat. And of course, I want, I can't, I have to talk about Pulp Fiction again with the food and characters. When Jules and Vincent Vega go to take care of business in that apartment, go into these guys' apartment, they think there's four white guys in there. And of course, uh, Jules is black and Vincent Vega, he's just, you know, and they're in their black and white suits, you know, uh, they mean business. Anyhow, he finds this wimpy target, the guy that he's supposed to kill, eating a big kahuna burger. And Jules, you know, he has this low-key conversation, very nonchalant conversation about, yeah, I hear those big kahuna burgers are really good, you know. And then he asks, he actually asks, he says, can I have a bite of it, you know. And the court, the kid is just shaken in the chair. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you can have a bite. And, you know, Jules basically dominating the entire room. And he's dominating it even more when he just takes the man's burger. And then, this is where Quentin Tarantino is the master. He, he has him turn. Jules just turns and shoots his buddy dead right on the couch. I mean, just like that. So he's casually talking about how, mm, this burger's really good. And then he just spins, bam, the guy's dead. So it's the burger scene juxtaposed with the extreme unexpected violence. And the tonal shift here is jarring. And for me, it's just lovable, okay? <laughs> well, food gives life, yeah. right? <laughs> Yeah. And certainly bullets take it away. So right. there's that contrast. That's a great, yeah, great insight into that one. Now, I, I talked about Inglorious Bastards from 2009 last week, and I just wanted to mention it a little bit again because I kind of dug down deep in it. Of course, it's the World War II, uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. World War II, Nazi-occupied France, and there's a plot hatched to assassinate Nazi leaders by a group of Jewish soldiers. soldiers. And so uh, enter, So you have Christopher Christoph Waltz is the actor. Oh, God, he's so good uh, as Hans Landa and he's sitting there with this young woman beautiful woman who uh, is a spy and at his table and some believe that he knows she's a spy at this point or part of the the, the Jewish brigade 
Um, others have said, no, he doesn't know. Regardless whether he knows who she is or not, where you fall on that uh, discussion, he orders the strudel, and it's and he orders, and he goes, oh, you got to have it, right? And she's just like, well, well, and he goes, no, no, you have to have the strudel, right? And so it's this long, almost disturbing scene because he's kind of toying with her. And then the strudel comes, and then he says, oh, no, you can't eat it yet. You have to wait for the cream. Well, what I didn't know about that particular scene is that back in back in the time in World War II, they made the cream with uh, pork lard. So as a Jewish woman, she she wouldn't eat the cream. Oh, so as a but test. It, yeah, yes, it, yeah. yes. But in this particular scene, she eats it without a blink. So great, great, great. And then my last example that I want to talk about is Ratatouille. And I saw this animation back in 2007. I loved it. But the reason I bring it up is because it's all about food, right? So it's maybe one of the best food and character movies ever in animation, right? Remy the Rat learns to love himself and in order to do that, he has to survive. Like you were just saying, you know, sustenance, food, to mm-hmm. live, right? This is a perfect example of your your insight there because he's got, as Remy the Rat, he's a rat. And he's got to do what's impossible. And he's got to learn to become a cook, right? He's got to cook for himself, right? This little rat. And so he learns how to do that. And that's the struggle in the heart of the movie. The ratatouille, it's, it's beautiful. We are going to be right back. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We're talking about motifs. We're talking about characters with their food. And, of course, wine. You know, wine and uh, sideways. Sideways, I mean, yeah, yeah. drinks. The yeah. White Russian and the Big Lebowski. I mean, it goes on and on and on, right? Right. Absolutely. Because a- after food, water, and shelter, we need wine, right? And White Russians. Something, man. It's you somewhere else. Something. We're trying yeah. to secure comfort. Yeah, but you want the tonal shift there. It's yeah. <laughs> you got to have that tonal shift. So we will be right back with Dr. Hankinson. She's going to be talking about The Maid, the Netflix blockbuster. Stay tuned. Sit tight and write, people. Welcome back to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. I'm Gail Stewart, and we are talking about a lot of stuff today. Let me tell you, and we got Dr. Hankinson. You were going to be talking about Made. That's right. I was first struck by this this show because of Andy McDowell, and her daughter is the star of it, and she co-stars in it. And if any of you have seen Andy McDowell. Do you, do you like Andy McDowell? I do, but remember, this was the topic of my whole episode, that I, my segment that we did on the made when I went up to Netflix for the Writers Guild Foundation, right? And we, right. I, I met, we met the showrunner for the made. And, and Stephanie oh, Land, the writer. Right, that, she came in via Zoom. It awesome. was fantastic. Um, but what, what's interesting to me about this show is the mother-daughter dynamic. That, that write-off is something of, of interest to me. It's interesting that in the show itself, the, the main character, Alex, who's played by Margaret Qualley, Andy McDowell's daughter, she actually carries the mother in all ways. The mother is bipolar, schiz- hints of schizophrenia, mm-hmm. and this poor poor woman um, has to not only watch her young daughter and deal with domestic abuse, but also 
always kind of chasing her mother, finding out, worried about where she is and her episodes, caretaking. So this kind of role reversal. And one of the things that was very striking to me about this is how ironic that is that in real life, it's really the, it's, it's so interesting to me that Andy McDowell is the big star that probably, um, jump-started Margaret Qualley's career. I mean, Margaret Qualley is great, but um, we always have that. Well, when your mother is Annie McDowell, I mean, come on. Right. And she, Margaret has said herself in many interviews that she just, she was so fortunate and so lucky to be born as who she was. Um, And I just, to me, it's a very funny interesting, ironic contrast between what is actually happening on the show with Alex taking care of the mother versus in real life, Margaret's actually... Um, Was well taken care of by yeah, her by riding mother. on her yeah. mother's curtails. But now, you know, gaining her own following. Sure, absolutely she is, because she did a darn good job in The Maid. She really did, and... So so anyway, that that was such an interesting role reversal for me to see that and and to see Andy in such a different kind of role that she's never been in before, playing somebody mentally ill and um, very promiscuous. And um, I think it was a challenge for her as well. But um, I I loved that aspect of it. The other thing that I thought was especially interesting about this show was the sense of metafiction in it that we see the main character, Alex, who symbolizes the author, Stephanie Land, and she's constantly just finding these little corners to write in, and she's actually writing about her own experiences, which then later translated into the book and then turned into the screenplay that we're actually watching. So I, I found that so interesting that it we watched the character writing what probably is what we're seeing on, on the screen. When I was in New York, the strange a strange loop is exactly the same way. He's writing a, a black queer playwright is writing about a black queer playwright in, in the in the play. Right. And that's a form of the metafiction, right? That we're we're seeing a, a fiction within a fiction. Yes. And, yes. And so to me that was another really intriguing aspect of the of this show. Mm-hmm. So Sort of a play within a play, right? Like a- the storyline itself, the topics that it dealt with, it was surprising to the cast and the crew. I believe the writer herself that it became such a popular show. It was one of the biggest. Netflix. Why do you think that was? I that that's what's interesting is it. It's not easy to swallow a lot of the topics: domestic abuse, homelessness, very serious topics that we don't always address and it wasn't what what I've read about it was that it wasn't something that was thought to be just palatable to the general public but it became so popular and I I think because I think really people are dealing with more topics that are challenging these days. I think that's spot on I really do I think that the door has been opened one for domestic violence and recognizing it for what it is and how uh, traumatic it is for the victims to climb out of that hole. Right. Uh, two, uh, a single mom, you know, and then also being a caretaker of somebody who is mentally ill, whether whether it's your parent, your sister, your brother, your daughter, it is a tough, tough job. Right. And just the whole um, working class 
um, structure. We, we don't always see a lot of movies that focus on that. I mean, with this world of Kardashians and glamour, we don't tend to watch a lot of shows that show a woman cleaning all day and throwing up from, you know, the disgusting environment that she's cleaning in and, and that kind of picture that's not so pretty to see. Quickly, one of my theories, and I think it's pretty solid, is that if you look at successful films, you're going to see that they have a high degree of irony. When we first started talking about Made a few episodes ago, Mm -hmm. one of the things that was mentioned was that the Made, she knew birthdays, she knew She knew what kind of of milk, what kind of cereal the kids liked. She She knew everything about them. She knew members of the family that didn't even know her. But then, you know, on the other side, this family that she worked for didn't even know that she was homeless or living in her car. If you're looking for the magic, I would look at the irony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, there have been actually this reversal of irony, this, this reversal of the trope of the maid in, in a lot of shows lately. Well, for example, I mean, this isn't the most recent example, but Orange County, which was about, I want to say, early 2000s. Um, it started that idea of the kind of prima donna maid. And I don't know if, if you guys saw that, but um, the maid was talking about how, how the, mother w- the mother of the home um, was bothering her all the time. She has to go talk to her therapist about it. And, you know, she's not going to clean this. She's not going to clean that. And then the Colin Hanks has to kind of placate her to just even continue being her maid. Um, and... That is kind of, I think, what has become more accepted in in society. There, we see that stereotype now of the kind of uppity maid. Um, so it was refreshing to see a really hardworking maid who could get in there and do some just really um, difficult work. Like the being the- a maid is hard. I was a maid. I was a maid, and I got well, hit in the head with a Murphy bed. You know, almost knocked me out. <laughs> not, I, was, that I was a, a gardener. That was a true story, okay? Well, you know, I seem to find more of the maids that are like in Orange County that have attitude and come in and they, you know, I'm not going to clean that. I'm not going to clean that. That is a first world problem, my dear. Dr. <laughs> and, and that's a first and world I, problem. My okay? kids are like, Where, where's the, the maid, like the real maid who comes in and oh my God. cleans Stop. and cleans? <laughs> anyway... Um, I, I honestly think, she, in, in maybe this is um, not. I think she breaks the back the stereotype to what a real, authentic maid would do. That's exactly right? what I'm saying. Being, so this is a realistic piece, right? People I mean, who watch this know that maids work incredibly hard. It's dangerous. One, you're in a hotel hallway, usually by yourself, in a room by yourself. Uh, two, it's hard work. You know, you're lifting the whole mattress to make the put the sheet on, right? And then you have to clean up after really piggy people. It shows a lot of of just hardship, stress, mm-hmm. hardship, things that we just don't see. Thank you so much for that. Of we appreciate course. that. So sit tight and right, people. We'll be back with final thoughts coming up just after this. I'm Gail Stewart with Raul Sandalin, Dr. Stacey Hankinson. Final thoughts today, Raul. 
Uh, yeah, during the break, we were talking some more about motifs, and it might have been one of those chihuahuas that are sleeping in the corner. <laughs> Don't blame but, them. But I, I won't. They were <laughs> snoring too loud. But uh, somebody had a question about uh, the use of the word motif, and there's a couple of different uses, uh, especially if you've uh, studied a lot of art history. Uh, you may have come across a similar term, leitmotif. Uh, Richard Wagner used that a lot. Um, and I was just again reminded uh, that it's also, we see it in modern film. A leitmotif, for instance, is used in Star Wars, mm -hmm. uh, where there's this little theme song or theme melody that plays every time we see Darth Vader. The Imperial March. Yeah. When he enters a room, you hear the Imperial March. Right? So, so yeah, so that would be a leitmotif, a little melody or a theme song for each character. Mm -hmm. I think we also saw that in, um, in, in No Accident. They used to call them spaghetti westerns. Right, so one's but, German, one's French. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. and spaghetti westerns were Italian, but that's for another <laughs> another topic. But yes, the leitmotif is German, motif is French. Obviously, yeah. They both come from the Latin. The M-O-T means motion, movement, motive. motive. Yeah, motivation. Right. Dr. Hankinson, final thoughts. Well, I was just thinking how a maid is, is a motif in a lot of films. Great, great. So listen, we are the San Diego Screenwriter Studio, and we just picked up another time slot. We are now Wednesday, 8 to 8.30, Friday, 4 to 4.30, and Sunday morning, 8, 8.30. So tune in for our latest tips on all things screenwriting and my latest adventures, of course. I want to tell you, remind everybody, next week we're going to do, our whole segment's going to be on table reads. And if you want to, please send in a short scene, one to two pages. We would love to give you a shout out on air and read your dialogue over the air. We are about discovering the undiscovered screenwriters. So give us a call, shoot us an email, whatever you need to do, but send in your script. I want to thank you for joining us here on KNSJ, San Diego's only social justice network. And remember, people, we want you to sit tight and write. Okay, thank you so much. See you next week.